Prejudices, First Series, Part 12, The Genealogy of Etiquette, by H. L. Mencken. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Barring sociology, which is yet, of course, scarcely a science at all, but rather a monkey shine which happens to pay like play-acting or theology, psychology is the youngest of the sciences, and hence chiefly guesswork, empiricism, hocus-pocus, poppycock. On the other hand, there are still enormous gaps in its data, so that the determination of its simplest principles remains difficult, not to say impossible, and, on the other hand, the very hollowness and nebulosity of it particularly around the edges, encourages a horde of quacks to invade it, sophisticate it, and make nonsense of it. Worse, this state of affairs tends to confusion of effort and direction that the quack and the honest inquirer are often found in the same man. It is indeed a commonplace to encounter a professor who spends his days in the laborious accumulation of psychological statistics sticking pins into babies and platting upon a chart the ebb and flow of their yells, and his knights chasing poltergeists and other such celestial fauna over the hurdles of a spiritualist atelier, or gazing into a crystal in the privacy of his own chamber. The Binet test and the buncombe of mesmerism are alike the children of what we roughly denominate psychology, and perhaps of equal legitimacy. Even so ingenious and competent an investigator is Professor Dr. Sigmund Freud, who has told us a lot that is of the first importance about the materials and machinery of thought. He has also told us a lot that is trivial and dubious. The essential doctrines of Freudism, no doubt, come close to the truth, but many of Freud's remoter deductions are far more scandalous than sound, and many of the professed Freudians both American and European, have grease paint on their noses and bladders in their hands and are otherwise quite indistinguishable from evangelists and circus clowns. In this condition of the science, it's no wonder that we find it wasting its chief force upon problems that are petty and idle when they are not downright and impalpably insoluble, and passing over problems that are of immediate concern to all of us and that might quite readily be solved, or at any rate considerably illuminated by an intelligent study of the data already available. After all, not many of us care a hoot whether Sir Oliver Lodge and the Indian chief Waka Waka Mak are happy in heaven, for not many of us have any hope or desire to meet them there. Nor are we greatly excited by the discovery that, of 25 freshmen who are hit with clubs, 17 and three quarters will say, ouch, and 22 and one-fifth will say damn, nor by a table showing that 38.2% of all men accused of homicide confess when locked up with the carcass of their victims, including 23.4% who are innocent, nor by plans and specifications by Cagliostro or Lucretia Borgia for teaching godforsaken school children to write before they can read and to multiply before they can add nor by endless disputes between half-witted pundits as to the precise differences between perception and cognition, 
nor by even longer feuds between pundits even crazier over free will, the subconscious, the endoneurium, the functions of the corpora quadramenia, and the meaning of dreams in which one is pursued by hyenas, process servers, or grass widows. Nay, we do not bubble with rejoicing when such fruits of psychological deep-down diving and much-mud-upbringing researchers are laid before us, for after all, they do not offer us any nourishment. There is nothing in them to engage our teeth. They fail to make life more comprehensible, and hence more bearable. What we yearn to know something about is the process whereby the ideas of every day are engendered in the skulls of those about us to the end that we may pursue a straighter and safer course through the muddle that is life. Why do the great majority of Presbyterians, and for that matter of Baptist, Episcopalians, and Swedenborgians as well, regard it as unlucky to meet a black cat and lucky to find a pin? What are the logical steps behind the theory that it's indecent to eat peas with a knife? By what process does an otherwise sane man arrive at the conclusion that he'll go to hell unless he's baptized by total immersion in water. What causes men to be faithful to their wives? Habit? Fear? Poverty? Lack of imagination? Lack of enterprise? Stupidity? Religion? What's the psychological basis of commercial morality? What is the true nature of the vague pooling of desires that Rousseau called the social contract? Why does an American regard it as scandalous to wear dress clothes at a funeral and a Frenchman regard it as equally scandalous not to wear them? Why is it that men trust one another so readily and women trust one another so seldom? Why are we all so greatly affected by statements that we know are not true? For example, in Lincoln's Gettysburg speech, the Declaration of Independence, and the 103rd Psalm. What is the origin of the so-called double standard of morality. Why are women forbidden to take off their hats in church? What is happiness, intelligence, sin, virtue, beauty? All these are questions of interest and importance to all of us, for their solution would materially improve the accuracy of our outlook upon the world, and with it our mastery of our environment. But psychologists, busily engaged in chasing their tails, leave them unanswered and in most cases, even unasked. The late William James, more acute than the general, saw how precious little was known about the psychological inwardness of religion, and to the illumination of this darkness, he addressed himself in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. But life being short, and science long, he got little beyond the statement of the problem and the marshalling of the grosser evidence. And even at this business, he allowed himself to be constantly interrupted by spooks, hobgoblins, seventh sons of seventh sons, and other such characteristic pets of psychologists. In the same way, one Gustave Le Bon, a Frenchman, undertook a psychological study of the crowd mind and then blew up. Add the investigations of Freud and his school, chiefly into abnormal states of mind, and those of Lombroso and his school, cheaply quackish and for the yellow journals, and the idle romancing of such inquirers as Professor Dr. Thorstein Veblen, and you have exhausted the list of contributions to what may be called practical and everyday psychology. 
The Revere professors, I dare say, have been doing some useful plowing and planting. All of their meticulous pin-sticking and measuring and chart-making in the course of time will enable their successors to approach the real problems of the mind with more assurance than is now possible, and perhaps help to their solution. But in the meantime, the public and social utility of psychology remains very small, for it's still unable to differentiate accurately between the true and the false, or to give us any effective protection against the fallacies, superstitions, crazes, and hysterias which rage in the world. In this emergency, it's not only permissible, but even laudable for the amateur to sniff inquiringly through the psychological pasture, essaying modestly to uproot things that the myopic, or perhaps more accurately hypermetropic, professionals have overlooked. The late Frederick Wilhelm Nietzsche did it often, and the usufructs were many curious and daring guesses, some of them probably close to accuracy as to the genesis of this, that, or the other common delusions of man. That is, the delusion that the law of the survival of the fittest may be repealed by an act of Congress. Into the same field, several very interesting expeditions have been made by Dr. Elsie Clues Parsons, a lady once celebrated by Park Row for her invention of trial marriage, an invention, by the way, in which the Nietzsche aforesaid preceded her by at least a dozen years. The records of her researches are to be found in a brief series of books, The Family, The Old-Fashioned Woman, and Fear and Conventionality. Apparently, they have wrung relatively little esteem from the learned, for I seldom encounter a reference to them, and Dr. Parsons herself is denied the very modest reward of mention in Who's Who in America. Nevertheless, they are extremely instructive books, particularly Fear and Conventionality. I know of no other work, indeed, which offers a better array of observations upon that powerful complex of assumptions, prejudices, instinctive reactions, racial emotions, and unbreakable vices of mind which enters so massively into the daily thinking of all of us. The author does not concern herself, as so many psychologists fall into the habit of doing, with thinking as a purely laboratory phenomenon, a process in vacuo. What she deals with is thinking as it is done by men and women in the real world, thinking that is only half intellectual, the other half being automatic and unintelligent as swallowing, blinking the eye, or falling in love. The power of the complex that I have mentioned is usually very much underestimated, not only by psychologists, but also by all other persons who pretend to culture. We take pride in the fact that we're thinking animals and like to believe that our thoughts are free, but the truth is that nine-tenths of them are rigidly conditioned by the babbling that goes on around us from birth, and that the business of considering this babbling objectively, separating the truth in it from the false, is an intellectual feat of such stupendous difficulty that very few men are ever able to achieve it. The amazing slanging which went on between the English professors and the German professors in the early days of the late war showed how little even cold and academic men are really moved by the bald truth and how much by hot and unintelligible likes and dislikes. The patriotic hysteria of the war simply allowed these eminent pedagogues to say of one another openly and to loud applause what they would have been ashamed to say 
in times of greater amenity and what most of them would have denied stoutly that they believed. Nevertheless, it's probably a fact that before there was a sign of war, the average English professor, deep down in his heart, thought that any man who ate sauerkraut and went to the opera in a sack coat and intrigued for the appellation of Geheimrat and preferred German music to English poetry and venerated Bismarck and called his wife Mutter was a scoundrel. He did not say so aloud, and no doubt it would have offended him had you accused him of believing it, but he believed it all the same, and his belief in it gave a muddy, bileless color to his view of German metaphysics, German electrochemistry, and the German chronology of Babylonian kings. And by the same token, the average German professor, far down in the ghostly recesses of his hulk, held that any man who read the London Times and ate salt fish at breakfast and drank tea of an afternoon and spoke of Oxford as a university was a Schosskopf, a Schuft, and possibly even a Schweinhund. Nay, not one of us is a free agent. Not one of us actually thinks for himself or in any orderly and scientific manner. The pressure of environment, of mass ideas, of socialized intelligence, improperly so called, is too enormous to be withstood. No American, no matter how sharp his critical sense, can ever get away from the notion that democracy is, in some subtle and mysterious way, more conducive to human progress and more pleasing to a just God than any of the systems of government which stand opposed to it. In the privacy of his study, he may observe very clearly that it exalts the facile and spacious man above the really competent man, and from this observation he may draw the conclusion that its abandonment would be desirable. But once he emerges from his academic seclusion and resumes the rubbing of noses with his fellow men, he'll begin to be tortured by a sneaking feeling that such ideas are heretical and unmanly, and the next time the band begins to play, he will thrill with the best of them, or the worst. The actual phenomenon, in truth, was copiously on display during the war. Having myself the character among my acquaintances of one holding the democratic theory in some doubt, I was often approached by gentlemen who told me in great confidence that they had been seized by the same tremors. Among them were journalists employed daily in demanding that democracy be forced upon the whole world, and army officers engaged, at least theoretically, in enforcing it. All these men, in reflective moments, struggled with ifs and buts. But every one of them, in his public capacity as a good citizen, quickly went back to thinking as a good citizen was then expected to think, and even to a certain inflammatory ranting for what, behind the door, he gravely questioned. It is the business of Dr. Parsons in Fear and Conventionality to prod into certain of ideas which thus pour into every man's mind from the circumambient air, sweeping away like some huge cataract the feeble resistance that his own powers of ratiocination can offer. In particular, she devotes herself to an examination of those general ideas which conditions the thought and actions of man as a social being, those general ideas which govern his everyday attitude toward his fellow men and his prevailing view of himself. In one direction they lay upon us the bonds of what we call etiquette, i.e. the duty of considering the habits and feelings of those around us. 
and in another direction, they throttle us with what we call morality, that is, the rules which protect the life and property of those around us. But, as Dr. Parsons shows, the boundary between etiquette and morality is very dimly drawn, and it's often impossible to say of a given action whether it's downright immoral or merely a breach of the punctilio. Even when the moral law is plainly running, considerations of mere amenity and politeness may still make themselves felt. Thus, as Dr. Parsons points out, there is even an etiquette of adultery. The ami de la famia vows not to kiss his mistress in her husband's house, not in fear, but as an expression of conjugal consideration, as a sign that he has not forgotten the thoughtfulness expected of a gentleman. And in his delicate field, as might be expected, the differences in racial attitudes are almost diametrical. The Englishman, surprising his wife with the lover, sues the rogue for damages and has public opinion behind him. But for an American to do it would be for him to lose caste at once and forever. The plain and only duty of the American is to open upon the fellow with artillery, hitting him if the scene is south of the Potomac and missing him if it is above. I confess to an endless interest in such puzzling niceties and much curiosity as to their origins and meaning. Why do we Americans take off our hats when we meet a flapper on the street and yet stand covered before a male of the highest eminence? A Continental would regard this last as boorish to the last degree in greeting any equal or superior, male or female, actual or merely conventional, he lifts his headpiece. Why does it strike us as ludicrous to see a man in dress clothes before 6 p.m.? The Continental puts them on whenever he has a solemn visit to make, whether the hour be 6 or noon. Why do we regard it as indecent to tuck the napkin between the waistcoat buttons or into the neck at meals? The Frenchman does it without thought of crime. So does the Italian. So does the German. All three are punctilious men, far more so, indeed, than we are. Why do we snicker at the man who wears a wedding ring? Most Continentals would stare askance at the husband who didn't. Why is it bad manners in Europe and America to ask a stranger his or her age and a friendly attention in China? Why do we regard it as absurd to distinguish a woman by her husband's title, e.g. Mrs. Judge Jones, Mrs. Professor Smith, in Teutonic and Scandinavian Europe, the omission of the title would be looked upon as an affront. Such fine distinctions, so ardently supported, raise many interesting questions, but the attempt to answer them quickly gets one bogged. Several years ago, I ventured to lift a sad voice against a custom common in America, that of married men in speaking of their wives, employing the full panoply of Mrs. Brown. It was my contention, supported, I thought, by logical considerations of the loftiest order, that a husband, in speaking of his wife to his equals, should say, my wife, that the more formal mode of designation should be reserved for inferiors and for strangers of undetermined position. This contention, somewhat to my surprise, was vigorously combated by various volunteer experts. At first, they rested their case upon the mere authority of custom, 
forgetting that this custom was by no means universal. But finally, one of them came forward with a more analytical and cogent defense, the defense to wit that my wife connoted proprietorship and was thus offensive to a wife's amour propre. But what of my sister and my mother? Surely it's nowhere the custom for a man addressing an equal to speak of his sister as Miss Smith. The discussion, however, came to nothing. It was impossible to carry it on logically. The essence of all such inquiries lies in the discovery that there is a force within the liver and lights of man that is infinitely more potent than logic. His reflections, perhaps, may take on intellectually recognizable forms, but they seldom lead to intellectually recognizable conclusions. Nevertheless, Dr. Parsons offers something in her book that may conceivably help to a better understanding of them, and that is the doctrine that the strange persistence of these rubber stamp ideas, often unintelligible and sometimes plainly absurd, is due to fear, and that this fear is the product of a very real danger. The safety of human society lies in the assumption that every individual composing it in a given situation will act in a manner hitherto approved as seemly. That is to say, he's expected to react to his environment according to a fixed pattern, not necessarily because that pattern is the best imaginable, but simply because it's determined and understood. If he fails to do so, if he reacts in a novel manner, conducive perhaps to his better advantage or what he thinks is his better advantage, then he disappoints the expectations of those around him and forces them to meet the new situation he's created by the exercise of independent thought. Such independent thought to a good many men is quite impossible, and to the overwhelming majority of men, extremely painful. To all of us, says Dr. Parsons, to the animal, to the savage, and to the civilized being, few demands are as uncomfortable, disquieting, or fearful as the call to innovate. Adaptations we all of us dislike or hate. We dodge or shirk them as best we may. And the man who compels us to make them against our wills, we punish by withdrawing from him that understanding and friendliness which he in turn looks for and counts upon. In other words, we set him apart as one who is antisocial and not to be dealt with, and according as his rebellion has been small or great, we call him a bore or a criminal. This distrust of the unknown, this fear of doing something unusual, is probably at the bottom of many ideas and institutions that are commonly credited to other motives. For example, monogamy. The orthodox explanation of monogamy is that it's a manifestation of desire to have and to hold property, that the husband defends his solitary right to his wife, even at the cost of his own freedom, because she is the pearl among his chattel. But Dr. Parsons argues, and with a good deal of plausibility, that the real moving force, both in the husband and the wife, may be merely the force of habit, the antipathy to experiment and innovation. It's easier and safer to stick to the one wife than to risk adventures with another wife. And the immense social pressure 
that I've just described is all on the side of sticking. Moreover, the indulgence of a habit automatically strengthens its bonds. What we have done once, or thought once, we are more apt than we were before to do and think again. Or, as the late Professor William James put it, the selection of a particular hole to live in, or a particular mate, a particular anything, in short, out of a possible multitude, carries with it an insensibility to other opportunities and occasions, an insensibility which can only be described physiologically as an inhibition of new impulses by the habit of old ones already formed. The possession of homes and wives of our own makes us strangely insensible to the charms of other people. The original impulse which got us homes, wives, seems to exhaust itself in its first achievements and to leave no surplus energy for reacting on new cases. Thus, the Benedict looks no more on women, at least for a while, and the post-honeymoon bride, as the late David Graham Phillips once told us, neglects the bedizenments which got her a man. In view of the popular or general character of most of the taboos which put a break upon personal liberty in thought and action, that is to say, in view of their enforcement by people in the mass, and not by definite specialists in conduct, it's quite natural to find that they are of extra force in democratic societies. For it's the distinguishing mark of democratic societies that they exalt the powers of the majority almost infinitely and tend to deny the minority any rights whatsoever. Under a society dominated by a small caste of revolutionists in custom, despite the axiom to the contrary, has a relatively easy time of it, for the persons whose approval he seeks for his innovations are relatively few in number, and most of them are already habituated to more or less intelligible and independent thinking. But under a democracy, he's opposed by a horde so vast that it is a practical impossibility for him, without complex and expensive machinery, to reach and convince all of its members. And even if he could reach them, he'd find most of them quite incapable of rising out of their accustomed grooves. They cannot understand innovations that are genuinely novel, and they don't want to understand them. Their one desire is to put them down. Even at this late day, with enlightenment raging through the Republic like a pestilence, it would cost the average Southern or Middle Western congressman his seat if he appeared among his constituents in spats or wearing a wristwatch. And if a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States however gigantic his learning and juridic rectitude, were taken in Crimcon with the wife of a senator, he'd be destroyed instanter. And if, suddenly revolting against the democratic idea, he were to propose, however gingerly, its abandonment, he would be destroyed with the same dispatch. But how, then, explain the fact that the populace is constantly ravaged and set aflame by fresh brigades of moral, political, and sociological revolutionists, that it's forever playing to the eager victim of new Montebanks. The explanation lies in the simple circumstance that these performers upon the public midriff are always careful to ladle out nothing actually new, and hence nothing incomprehensible, alarming, and accursed. What they offer is always the same old panacea with an extra gouty label, 
the tried, tasted, and much-loved dose, the colic cure that Mother used to make. Superficially, the United States seems to suffer from an endless and astounding neophilism. Actually, all its thinking is done within the boundaries of a very small group of political, economic, and religious ideas, most of them unsound. For example, there's the fundamental idea of democracy, the idea that all political power should remain in the hands of the populace, that its exercise by superior men is intrinsically immoral. Out of this idea spring innumerable notions and crazes that are no more, at bottom, than restatements of it in sentimental terms, rotation in office, direct elections, the initiative in referendum, the recall, the popular primary, and so on. Again, there is the primary doctrine that the possession of great wealth is a crime, a doctrine half a religious heritage and half the product of mere mob envy. Out of it has come free silver, trust-busting, government ownership, muckraking, populism, blaziism, progressivism, the mild forms of socialism, the whole gasconade of reform politics. Yet again, there is the ineradicable peasant suspicion of the man who is having a better time in the world, a suspicion grounded, like the foregoing, partly upon undisguised envy and partly upon archaic and barbaric religious taboos. Out of it have come all the glittering pearls of the uplift, from abolition to prohibition, and from the crusade against horse racing to the Man Act. The whole political history of the United States is a history of these three ideas. There has never been an issue before the people that could not be translated into one or another of them. What's more, they have also colored the fundamental philosophical and particularly epistemological doctrines of the American people and their moral theory and even their foreign relations. The late war, very unpopular at the start, was sold to them, as the advertising phrase has it, by representing it as a campaign for the salvation of democracy, half-religious and wholly altruistic. So represented to them, they embraced it, represented as the highly obscure and complex thing it actually was. It would have been beyond their comprehension and hence abhorrent to them. Outside this circle of their elemental convictions, they're quite incapable of rational thought. One is not surprised to hear Bismarck, a thorough royalist, discussing democracy with calm and fairness. But it would be unimaginable for the American people, or for any other democratic people, to discuss royalism in the same manner. It would take a cataclysm to bring them to any such violation of their mental habits. When such cataclysms occur, they embrace the new ideas that are its fruits with the same adamantine firmness. One year before the French Revolution, disobedience to the king was unthinkable to the average Frenchman. Only a few daringly immoral men cherished the notion. But one year after the fall of the Bastille, obedience to the king was equally unthinkable. The Russian Bolsheviki, whose doings have furnished a great deal of immensely interesting material to the student of popular psychology, put the principle into plain words. Once they were in the saddle, they decreed the abolition of the old imperial censorship and announced that speech would be free henceforth, but only so long as it kept within the bounds of the Bolshevist revelation. In other words, 
any citizen was free to think and speak whatever he pleased, but only so long as it did not violate certain fundamental ideas. This is precisely the sort of freedom that has prevailed in the United States since its first days. It's the only sort of freedom comprehensible to the average man. It accurately reveals his constitutional inability to shake himself free from the illogical and often quite unintelligible prejudices, instincts, and mental vices that condition 90% of all his thinking. But here I wander into political speculation and no doubt stand in the contumacy of some statute of Congress. Dr. Parsons avoids politics in her very interesting book. She confines herself to the purely social relations. For example, between man and woman, parent and child, host and guest, master and servant. The facts she offers are vastly interesting, and their discovery and coordination reveal a tremendous industry. But of even greater interest are the facts that lie over the margin of her inquiry. Here is a golden opportunity for other investigators. I often wonder that the field is so little explored. Perhaps the Freudians, once they get rid of their sexual obsession, will enter it and chart it. No doubt, the inferiority complex described by Professor Dr. Alfred Adler will one day provide an intelligible explanation of many of the puzzling phenomena of mob thinking. In the work of Professor Dr. Freud himself, there is perhaps a clue to the origin and anatomy of Puritanism, that worst of intellectual nephritis. I live in the hope that the Freudians will fall upon the business without much further delay. Why do otherwise sane men believe in spirits? What's the genesis of the American axiom that the fine arts are unmanly? What is the precise machinery of the process called falling in love? Why do people believe in newspapers? Let there be light. End of Prejudices First Series, Part 12, The Genealogy of Etiquette by H. L. Mencken